A man was rescued after 20 years on a deserted island. His rescuer was astonished to find the castaway had built several incredible structures. Wow, the rescuer said. What's that beautiful stone building overlooking the bay? Well, that's my, my home, the castaway said. And what about that building over there with the spires? That, the castaway said, is my church. But wait, the rescuer asked, what about that building over there with the bell tower? What's that? And the castaway replied, that's the church I used to attend. <laughs> I guess we call that church growth. I'm not sure it's a good thing that churches are known for splitting. Pastor Leslie Flynn actually published a book in 1976 entitled Great Church Fights. Now, now, the purpose of the book was to provide biblical instruction for how to handle conflict in the church, but the book actually became famous just for its title and then some of the illustrations. For example, he tells a story, true story, of a church in Dallas that split, and when they did, each side claimed ownership of, of the building, of the church property. It, w- it was taken to court. That's right, a church fight paraded before the public, uh, but the court ruled that the decision should be left to denominational authorities, so one side did retain property of, um, retain ownership of the property, the other side was ousted. By the way, Flynn says uh, when the source of the disagreement was investigated, it came down to a church dinner where one elder was incensed that he received a smaller piece of ham than the child next to him, not making that up. Flynn also cites this poem in his book, Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink, look as I look, do always as I do, and then and only then I'll fellowship with you. Church fights, division, disagreement, a lack of unity is actually as old as the church itself. In the very first church, I mean, there was only one in Jerusalem, there was a fight, a disagreement of all things over food, really. In Acts chapter 6, we read, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, that's kind of the Greek Jews, against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Sounds like she got a bigger piece of ham than me. Well, okay, so it it was a little bit more serious. Widows, without someone caring for them, wouldn't wouldn't make it. And some were actually being overlooked. So a disagreement arose, and the first church deacons were, were appointed. Now think about that. In some of the churches that you've attended, deacons were appointed to bring unity. A little later... Same book, Acts chapter 15, a couple of the first missionaries had a fight about who should be on on their current missionary tour, and so they split. People are always uh, having difficulty getting along. And Christians, when, when they forget, when we forget 
who we are and what Christ has done have trouble getting along. I'm not sure that uh, disagreements between Christians are any worse than disagreements between non-Christians. It's just that more is expected, and so it just seems worse. Actually, you can YouTube church fights. It's kind of fun to watch or, or, or sad to watch. This was true in the church of Philippi. It's actually one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons he wrote the book. We know he's in prison in Rome. He gets a, a report from Epaphroditus. Now, the cool thing was Epaphroditus had brought a gift of financial support from the Philippian church. They, they sent him to find out how Paul was doing. But it seems also that he brought some news of church division. I mean, after all, the church was 10 years old by this time. It was about time they had a good fight and split. That's what we do today. When we can't get along, we just move down the street, build another church. That works a while till we can't get along, move down the street, build another church. What is interesting is that Paul does not call for them to split. He does not say, if you can't get along, just move along. He calls them rather to remember some things and reconcile. Read the text with me. It's found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, it didn't say divided. Intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit because of most church splits. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own, inter own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, last week in chapter 1, we looked um, at, the, at the theme passage of the letter. Only, I want you to do this one thing, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm, the idea is together in one Holy Spirit and in one uh, mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In order to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, we must be humbly united. Especially this, this church, they, they were facing some external pressures, uh, opposition, which tends to divide. He had received word that they were not striving together. Some were striving against each other. He names two by name in chapter 4. We're going to get there, Euodia and Syntyche, who he said used to stand side by side with me facing a common enemy, but now they were, they were still fighting, but they were facing each other, striving not together, uh, uh, not with each other, but against each other. A church split was in, uh, was in the making. Now remember that Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel. 
And he has told them that suffering is part of the Christian life. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict that you saw uh, in me. You, you have been given divine grace. Here's a gift for you, not only to believe but also to suffer. And if we're not careful, those external pressures can lead to str internal strife. Therefore, Paul begins chapter 2. In light of the gospel-worthy life that I'm calling to, in, in, in light of the call to stand firm together and strive in one mind together, in light of the external opposition and suffering that you're facing and will face, therefore, I want you to remember some things and do some things. Let me give you the outline as we jump into the text. He's going to He's going to bring some things to their mind by way of remembrance that is going to be their motivation for action. Then he's going to give them this call to unity and a call to humility. In verse 1, by calling them to remember God's grace in their lives, again, their remembering was to serve as a motivation for unity and humility in the verses that follow. He reminds them specifically of four things, all four of which came and remain through the gospel. He reminds them of their encouragement in Christ. He reminds them of their consolation of, and I'm going to suggest that it's God's love. He reminds them of their fellowship in the Spirit. And he reminds them of their affection and compassion, which they seem to have lost. Notice he says, if there is any encouragement... We would read that as if there might not be, if there is any consolation, if there is any fellowship, if there is any affection or compassion. This is a very specific construction in the Greek that assumes a positive response. He says, if these things are true, and of course, the way it's written, and of course, we know they are true. In fact, it could rightly be translated, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship in the Spirit and affection. Paul rightly assumes the Philippians and us have experienced all of these things, and he uses them to stir us up to, to do some things. Now, Remember, there are, no, there are no chapter divisions in the Greek. And he's just, he's just come out of verses 29 and, and 30 of chapter 1. And, and he gets to the very next thing he says and starts chapter 2 with the word therefore. Therefore, in light of the fact that it has been granted to you to suffer, therefore, in light of the fact that you are suffering the same conflict that I had when I was there. Remember when they beat me and threw me in jail overnight? Therefore, in the midst of that suffering, if there's any encouragement or comfort in Christ. Yes, he says, I know the Christian life is difficult. I know that the Christian life will bring opposition. I know that it's going to bring persecution. I just told you that. But in the midst of this suffering... There is, is there encouragement? And the word encouragement includes this idea of comfort. Is there, any, is there any encouraging comfort in Christ? And again, it's worded in such a way that we would be saying, yeah, of course there is, Paul. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Well, yeah. He said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God 
and, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, it's been granted to you, it's a gift. Here you go, you get, a, you get suffering. So also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Is there any comfort in the midst of affliction and, and suffering, the ones that you have been graciously given to endure? The answer is, of course, there is encouragement in Christ. Second, is there any consolation of love? Now, 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 now notice there, there's no subject or object in, in that particular phrase. It really is, if consolation of love, and we have to stop and ask, well, who's love? And I'm, I'm suggesting it's very likely God's love because I think that Paul here is using a Trinitarian formula. Is there any comfort from being in Christ? Is there any consolation of God's love? Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Back to 2 Corinthians. In the very last verse of the book, Paul writes these words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, from, from being in Christ, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He gives them this benediction, this, this church at Corinth, and says, these things be yours from our triune God. And now I believe he's saying to the Philippian church, if these things are yours, and of course they, they, they are, is there any encouragement from being in Christ the, the knowledge of sins forgiven uh, and being reconciled to the Father through the work of the Son. Uh, yeah, of course there's encouragement. And even in the midst of your suffering, isn't there comfort from knowing, that even as you're facing these challenges, isn't there comfort from knowing that God loves you? This is what he's saying. Of course there is. The Apostle John spoke regularly of God's love for us in his first epistle. He said, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God and such we are. He goes on to say, by this uh, the love of, the, uh, of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Is there any consolation from the Father's love toward us? Of course there is. Third, Paul says, is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Again, remembering the answer is assumed. Yes, there's fellowship in the Spirit. The word fellowship is one that we've already looked at. Uh, it, it, was the, it was the word participation back in chapter 1, verse 5, and the word partakers in, in verse 7 of that chapter. It's that word koinonia. Is there any partnership? Is there any participation together that we enjoy in the Spirit? Is there a common a bond of life that unites us in the one Holy Spirit? Is there an inseparable bond of the Spirit that unites us? Of course there is. Again, Paul, I believe, is invoking the Trinity. I know you're suffering just like me. It's been granted as a grace gift to you to suffer for Christ. But, it, but if there is any comfort from the attention of the triune God, the fact that you are in Christ, the fact that you are loved by the Father, the fact that you participate, that we participate together in the Spirit, I want you to remember these things as you suffer. 
This is, a, this is the, the foundation of, this is the motivation for what he's about to tell them, but he's not quite done. He transitions a bit with his fourth if. Again, an if that is assumed to be true. If there is any affection and compassion. Well, we're, we're, out, of, we're out of members of the Trinity. From whom and to whom is Paul talking? I think he means for himself. If you have any affection and compassion for me in the midst of my suffering, and, and of course there is that. Yes, there is. You sent Epaphroditus to check on me. You, you sent a, a gift. In chapter 4, he says, you renewed your concern for me. I know you have affection and compassion for me. That, that word affection is a, is a word that, he, that he's already used. Paul spoke that he longed for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. We, we saw that that word is, is the word splankna, which speaks of the gut. Remember, they'd say, I love you with all, not, not with all my heart, but I love you with all my guts. Uh, there is, there's this feeling of deep longing for you in the pit of my stomach, he says, and I know that you have that for me because you evidence that by sending Epaphroditus to see me, this affection leading to compassionate concern. If there's any, if there, if there's any affection for me, because then he's going to go on to his command. I want you to remember the comfort of Christ. I want you to remember the love of the Father. I want you to remember the fellowship of the Spirit. And I want you to remember the affection that you have for me. If, if all of these things are true, and they are, then he goes on to give his command. And it's actually one command where he says, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. As you are concerned about me, here's something that you can do for me. Make my joy complete. How? And that brings us to our second point. He goes on to tell, having given this command, he goes on to tell how they can make his joy complete. First, in verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, we remember that joy is a thread that runs through this book. We also remember that Paul is in prison in Rome, suffering for the cause of Christ, and yet, he says, I'm still filled with joy. He's already said, I'm filled with joy whenever I think of you. I'm, I'm filled with joy when I think of your participation in the gospel. I'm filled with joy because the gospel is being preached. I'm filled with joy because some people are believing the gospel, some even in the Praetorian Guard, some even in Caesar's household. I, I'm rejoicing. I am filled with joy because Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. It doesn't matter. I'm still going to rejoice. And, and I know that you have this affection toward me, so I want you to complete my joy. I want you to fill up my joy to overflowing by being united in Christ. Don't miss what he's saying. Paul's joy, we've said, was not contingent on his outward circumstances. His joy was found in the gospel, and now we see that his joy was found in the gospel life that he sees in others. You can complete my joy while I am languishing in prison where I've been for up to four years now. I can be overwhelmed filled to overflowing with joy by you allowing the gospel to be evident in your lives. Your following Christ brings me complete joy. 
Again, to quote the Apostle John, he said, I have no greater joy. There's no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That brings me the greatest, most complete joy. It doesn't get any better. It doesn't really matter what's going on out here. Now, the rest of the passage, as he says, make my joy complete, the rest of the passage is actually fairly clear. In fact, one author I have suggests that it is probably too clear given church fights and church splits and church divisions. This unity is expressed, he says, by being of the same mind, of being like-minded. He's telling them to set their minds on the same thing. This doesn't mean that we always think the same thing about everything. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I want you to think the, the, the same thing about Everything, going back to that poem, doesn't mean we eat and drink and, and wear and think the same thing. That's not what he means. He, he actually repeats himself at the end of the verse to help us understand. He uses the same word in a little bit different form. When I say I want you to be of the same mind, it means I want you to think the same thing about something, and that is that we are intent on one thinking. We are intent, we are focused on one purpose. Doesn't matter whether or not you like, you know, Carolina or NC State. Don't really care, especially this morning. That's, I, I'm, I'm not calling you to think the same thing about everything. I am calling us to think the same thing about one thing. Our one purpose together is to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. So while we may look differently, we may sound differently, we may like differently, we might even hold peripheral truths differently. We are intent with the same mind on one purpose. And for Paul, it was and it was always Christ and his gospel. And if we, as a, as a people of Alliance Bible Fellowship, can stay committed to that First and foremost, other non-essential things will fall away. Can, can, can I tell you that to my knowledge, to my knowledge, no one has ever left Alliance Bible Fellowship because of the gospel. He says this unity comes from the same mind. The same purposeful thinking about the gospel, and by maintaining the same love. What love? It's the love he just mentioned in verse 1. Maintain the same love of God that we've experienced and now causes us, this love of God causes us to love each other. Going back to John's writings, he says, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Anyone who says he loves God and, and doesn't love his brothers and sisters, he's a liar. You can't say you love God, but you don't love God's people. You're a liar. Take it up with John. Jesus said, and again, John recorded it, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how we will be known as followers of Christ, by our mutual love. In, in, in fact, as, uh, I remember that in the, in the early church, they actually sent spies in. The people that were opposing the church actually sent spies in to kind of see what was going on. 
because communion was actually held in secret and they kind of thought it was a, this, this, this weird rite. And they, so they sent spies in and they came out and they said, they keep waiting for this one who was crucified. They keep waiting for him, this one that's called Christ. And see how these Christians love one another. This is what Tertullian, the early church father, recorded. See how these Christians love one another. What's very interesting is uh, about 2,000 years later, in the, in the early 1940s, there was a war going on in Europe. And, and there was a, an editorial cartoon that came out that had one Asian person speaking to another one. And the caption read, see how these Christians love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Christians should be known for love, not for fights, not for church splits. He already told them back in chapter 1, I pray that your love will abound still more and more. You have loved each other, but now I am hearing of divisions. Don't be divided. Maintain the same love. In fact, I want you to abound in love. Allow your love to grow to greater and greater degree. And continue to be united in spirit. And you might be asking, should that be capitalized as we talked about last night? It's not actually the word spirit, it's the word soul. And that takes us back to last week. I want to hear from you that you are standing firm in one Holy Spirit with one soul. That's the word, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are to be united in one soul. That's the word that's used here. We are to be of the same soul. We're to be of the same person one souled together. I made that up, S-O-U-L-E-D. Paul here is speaking of harmony. Make my joy complete by being singly focused on the gospel, maintaining and in fact abounding in the same love for each other, being harmoniously united together in one soul. Brings us to our last point. As we remember All that we have through the gospel, encouraging comfort, consoling love, fellowship of the Spirit, family, family affection. We are to be harmoniously unified in the gospel life with one thinking or or intent on one purpose is the idea. One love, one soul, one purpose, which leads to his last command. This can only happen if we are Humble toward one another. Make my joy complete because I want you to be unified. And he's building, he's building, and it's going to take personal and corporate humility. Could have preached the whole message on this one. You have to understand that humility was not a virtue to be pursued at this time in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, humility was despised. If the word humility was used, it was used in a derogatory sense to speak of weakness, of of, of shameful lowliness, of servility, of being a servant. Humility was not something to be pursued. Not unlike today. Uh, We've dressed it up a bit. Uh, We've changed words around a little bit. We're told to pursue a healthy self-esteem. We're told to love yourself, and we even abuse Bible verses uh, to, to teach us that. We, we, are to, we, we, are, we told, and we tell our kids all the time to think highly of themselves. I mean, ha- have a race, and even fourth place gets a ribbon because everybody's winners. 
You know, I, I, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. When there's a race, there's only one w- winner. As a result, we are raising a generation. We are raising a generation of self-obsessed narcissists. For example, the results of the American freshman survey were released just this month. How many of you saw the re- Anybody see that? It's quite intriguing. It is a survey to determine how college freshmen see themselves as compared to their peers in academics and in achievements and in self-confidence. The survey actually began back in 1966, and during that time over the last almost 40 years, they have surveyed 9 million students. When it began, most freshmen thought of themselves, when you just compiled the data, most freshmen thought of themselves as average. Today, most recent survey, most young people think of themselves as quite above average. They are more likely to call themselves gifted and driven to succeed even while study time and test scores are plummeting. In fact, one article I read suggested that this most recent survey displayed an unprecedented self-infatuation. I'm I'm going to not go off on Facebook. You do understand that most people can't be above average. Otherwise, that would be the average. I'm not sure how they came up with the numbers. Again, this is a statistical analysis. I'll leave that to the statisticians. But the results show, quote, a 30% increase toward narcissism. If there is one great enemy to the Christian life and the Christian family, if there's one great enemy, it is pride. Pride stands at the heart of all human fallenness when Eve said, I will be like God. C.S. Lewis called pride the, the great sin in mere Christianity. If there is one thing that will destroy unity, it is for us to be self-focused, to make it all about me. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do some things. Instead, choose to do some other things. And he draws some very stark contrasts. I'm going to take just a couple of minutes to go through the rest, rest of the text, starting with the negative. First, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Look at each of those words. If you are selfishly self-focused, the the result will be selfish action which destroys unity and humility. I want to suggest that if we could do some type of investigation, that most church splits and problems are rooted in selfishness. Her ham is bigger than mine. The result is rivalry. It's another way that you can uh, translate this word selfishness. Not fighting side by side with each other, but fighting against each other. Because the focus needs to be on me. Paul says, do nothing motivated by selfishness. Do nothing motivated with a self-focus. Not only that, do nothing from empty conceit. Very interesting word that he uses there. It is literally empty glory. The word was used in extra-biblical literature at this time to speak of those who think too highly of themselves. 
And the survey says, conceit is, 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 is vanity. It's a little worse than pride. It's arrogance. Paul says, do nothing from empty conceit. It's an interesting word, from empty vanity, because there's nothing there. There's no data to support the the claim. It's baseless. You're fooling yourself. It is self-aggrandizing conceit. Don't do that. Have a proper self-estimation. And then let me qualify something as I say that. Humility is not false modesty. Look at me. I'm so humble. We can actually become proud of our humility. We can gain more self-serving attention by self-effacing modesty. It's not what Paul is talking about. Humility is a proper self-estimation and a proper self-forgetfulness. That's very important as we talk about humility. It is self-forgetfulness. Humility doesn't think of itself lowly. It doesn't think of itself. And so at the end of verse 3 when he says we are to regard one another as more important, it's not talking about worth. They're better than me. Oh, you know, woe is me. It's talking about being rightly more concerned about their needs and their, uh, and their concerns. That their needs surpass your own needs. It has been said. You can write this down if you're taking notes. This is really good. I wish it was mine. Love begins when someone else's needs are more important than your own. That's when love begins. How do we maintain the same love? When other people's needs become more important than my own. I'm not talking about inferiority, superiority. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about you being more important than me. That's, that's not even the issue. Verse 4, he says, do not merely look out for your own personal answers. The word merely, notice, is in italics, which means it's not in the original language. I find that interesting. Literally, he says, don't look out for your own interests. Now, I suppose by adding the word merely, we are acknowledging that it is appropriate to look out for your own interests. Please shower. But, but, that, that, but that is not usually the problem. The problem is that we usually only look out for our own interests. This is what Paul is condemning. Instead, he says, and he turns to the positive, back in verse 3, with humility of mind, with appropriate humility in your thinking, regard or value each other as more important than yourselves. Hold each other in higher esteem. Again, this is not false modesty. With humble thinking, put others before yourselves. And I don't know, miss something here. Paul is talking to the church at Philippi. Yes, it is that we are, we are to think of unbelievers. We're going to talk about that tonight. But the emphasis here is we are to regard one another as more important. We are to hold each other in high esteem. Again, the problem leading to division in most churches is that we hold ourselves into high esteem. It's all about me. I deserve a bigger piece of ham. 
Not only that, he says, you aren't looking out for your own interests. Instead, you are looking out for the interests of others. You are not self-focused, only trying to get your own needs and wants uh, and interests met. Your focus is on meeting the needs and interests of others. Now, I want you to stop and think about that a minute. See, I happen to think, this is just my personal opinion, but I happen to think that God is really, really smart. If each one of us runs around trying to meet our own individual interests, then each one of us will have one person on their team. It's me. But if we choose to do it God's way, instead of having just me as the captain of my team of me, I will have you all on my team and I am on yours, and instead of having one person look out for my interests, I have all of you looking out for my interests. Now, that's not to be meant, meant to be an end around. Okay, I'll look out for your interests so that you will look out for mine. Now, God says it just works better this way. It's godly, and it's right. And all of this will lead not to division, but humble unity in the church. All this requires that we remember what God has done for us through the gospel of His Son, that we forget ourselves and we focus on others. This is proper, humble unity. Let me close with this thought. The conductor of a symphony was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play? He responded, second violin. I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm, with enthusiasm, that is a problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. Let's stand for prayer.